Hello and welcome to the first episode of Back Row Reviews. I'm happy to have you guys here and I hope you're ready to have some fun. Let's get started. All right, Dozer, it's time to go see the movie. Come on, let's get to our seats. And now, our feature presentation. All right, uh, this is our premiere episode. Um, this is a uh, this is the podcast, uh, Back Row Reviews. I am John Browning, uh, but everybody calls me Johnny, so... Happy to have you, everyone here. Um, I've been a fan of podcasts for a long time, and I kind of just wanted to try my my own little hand at uh, making one. So this is the reason why I decided to do this, and um, <laughs> that's pretty much it I have. Um, sorry, well, hopefully we'll get better. Um, now, the first movie that... I'm going to talk about is Friday the 13th. Now, the reason I chose this movie is because I was not a fan of horror movies growing up. Well, kind of, I can handle movies like Jaws and Tremors pretty well, but the slashers, they just didn't work for me. And primarily because when I was a kid, I saw this probably it was about the late 80s to early 90s when... I saw this on my local Fox station one Halloween and our first scene where the male counselor, uh, Barry gets, uh, stabbed. It completely terrified me and kind of, kind of traumatized me a little bit. But, um, years later, I finally did watch these films. I, I like these films for what they are. So, I kind of just want to talk about them. Um, so, Friday the 13th came out in 1980. Um, it was written by Victor Miller and Ron Kurtz. Uh, Ron Kurtz was uncredited for this film. It was directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Uh, with special effects and makeup. Uh, was was done with Tom Savini. Tom Savini also did stunts for the film. Uh, Tasso in Stravicus was special makeup effects assistant. Uh, Kathleen Vickers is our hairstylist for Miss Palmer and uh, makeup artist. Cecilia Verderde was key makeup artist, but she was uncredited. Uh, the film came out in May 9th of 1980. It had a budget of 550000 but it had a box office gross of $59.8 million, which that is very impressive for the slashers at that time. So let's uh, kind of get on to the movie. Uh, we start with a night shot of Camp Crystal Lake, and this is going to be our very first uh, of many of the views from the killer's point of view which is really nice to see. Um, and our killer is seen walking into the fox cabin. And we see many of the little kid uh, campers sleeping. 
thankfully, nothing happened to any of them. Um, then we kind of move on to a bunch of the counselors sitting around a campfire, uh, singing basically kumbaya songs, <laughs> you know, typical camp stuff. And we see Claudette, played by Deborah S. Hayes, and then Barry, uh, who was played by Willie Adams. Um, I was looking it up for research, and this and these is the only uh, film roles that they both had. Essentially, it's like, and after you do a Friday the Thirteenth movie, you're like, yeah, one and done. <laughs> yes, but basically, the, these two are just giving each other the obvious bedroom eyes just I'll just basically just oh I'm gonna <laughs> go at you later so they end up excusing themselves and sneaking up to a um uh, what I can probably say is like a storage building uh they proceed to make out a little bit and then they decide to move off to the loft to do the deed you know, make the beast with two backs. You get my meaning. Now we go back to the killer's point of view, and they are walking up the stairs. After a few seconds, Clyax looks towards the camera and whispers to Barry, Somebody's there. Both of them jump up and start to straighten up. Barry, then noticing who our killer is, says, We weren't doing anything. Well, Sorry, Barry, you become the first kill of the movie and you are stabbed in the gut. This is the scene I was talking about that caused me to just be terrified of these movies. Um, our killer turns over to Claudette and she tries to run away. But nope. And we get the slow motion screen and then the opening credits, which are some of the most impressive opening credits in in horror slasher history the friday the 13th is moving up towards the camera and then glass shatters friday the 13th um which is very impressive i don't think many films have stuff like that that is that impressive to this day now we are actually going to jump ahead now to june 13th of 1980 uh 20 years later um, in Camp Crystal Lake's town. Don't have that information here. It's kind of a little hard to find. Oh, actually, no. It's, uh, I believe, in Hardwick, New Jersey. That's where uh, this, the movie was filmed. And we see Annie, played by Robbie Morgan, um, who is uh, walking into the town. She's backpacking into Hardwick. Uh, Robbie Morgan has had a, uh, she's had a decent, uh, career, it looks like. She was primarily, uh, she had two roles before Friday the 13th and a, a few TV and, a few TV and TV movies. So, I mean, she did pretty well for herself afterwards. Um, now in Hardwick, New Jersey, the actual, there is an actual camp in Hardwick. Uh, it was camp, no Bebo's co. Uh, the camp is actually still around in operation at the time of this, um, 
this podcast, and they actually have a memorabilia wall for uh, the first film, which is kind of nice that they can actually, you know, they accept it and that they accept that as part of the heritage. I think that's kind of cool. Annie stops to talk to a dog at the gas pumps. Uh, She goes, hi, girl. Oh, sorry. Hi, boy. Do you know where Camp Crystal Lake is? Not getting an answer for the dog, of course. She she goes into the little diner general store area, and uh, she meets a few of the locals. Uh, Trudy, who I believe is the owner-operator, um, played by Dorothy Cobbs, who I believe might have had some roles. Uh, no, actually, that's it. She's the only one credited. But the the actual big star is the truck driver, also known as Enos. Enos is actually really he's had some he's had some small movie roles, but probably for most of us Disney movie fans, he is uh, famously known as the voice of Belle's father Maurice in Beauty and the Beast in 1991. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really cool to learn that about him. Um, Annie uh, inquires about how far Camp Crystal Lake is. I mean, everybody and everyone honestly gives her kind of a kind of a shocked look. Um, Trudy, Trudy uh, then asks Enos, it's like, what, 20 miles, Enos? He says, just about. Another lady in the, in the store asks, Camp Blood? They're opening that place again? And there's some back and forth conversation. And uh, Trudy then asks Enos if he could give Annie a ride to the crossroads since he's heading that way. He reluctantly agrees, but he agrees nonetheless. As Enos and Annie stand outside, he asks her, Are all the girls at that camp going to be as pretty as you? (laughs) She just laughs. But then they're hit with Crazy Ralph. Uh, actor by the name of uh, Walt Gornry. I'm sorry if I'm saying that name wrong. Um, He's pretty much... uh, He's had a pretty decent um, film career. Uh, Oh, actually, he was in the 1976 uh, King Kong movie, I see. Huh. That's cool. And he was also in uh, Friday the 13th Part 2, and he was in, uh, which I believe that's the one where he meets his end. And then he was in uh, Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, as the opening narrator, but he was uncredited for that role. But anyway... Enos and Andy see Ralph, and the first thing he goes, he says to Andy is, You're going to Camp Blood, ain't you? Enos tells Ralph to get out of here and leave people alone. Ralph comes back with, You'll never come back again. Enos gives one more response of, Shut up, Ralph. And then, then as Enos and Andy or walking away, Ralph goes and says the probably one of the more famous lines of the movie, it's got a death curse. So, I mean, which is, he's probably one of the more 
well-known characters, even with a small part. I mean, a lot of people know those lines that Ralph says, and that's kind of, that's pretty much the end of everything for, um, for the town of Hardwick. Um, so then we got Annie and Enos driving in Enos's big, uh, fuel truck, and Enos is really trying his best to talk Annie into quitting, but she's really looking forward to the job, uh, cooking for about 50 kids and about 10 staff. Enos pretty much telling her everything that's happened at the camp, the two more murders in 58, the boy drowning in 57, a bunch of fires, Steve's parents we're going to open it back up and uh, Steve, who is the current owner, whose parents were going to open it back up in 62, but the water was bad. He says his Chris Steele will end up like his folks, crazy and broke. He's been up there for a year fixing camp and must have spent $25,000 on it. But, I mean, Annie is dead set. She has this really good work ethic, Abby, from really hearing about her, that she just can't quit. Enos states, dumb kids, know-it-alls, just like my niece, head full of rocks. <laughs> and he comes back with this really, just almost like a, a millennial response. <laughs> he calls him, you're an American original. You know, very, <laughs> and Enos is just like, I'm an American original, dumb kid. Well, they come up to the crossroads in front of um, Morvan uh, Cemetery in Hope, New Jersey. Enos wishes her luck and she heads off to the camp. Now we move on to <clears throat> probably, well, three of the more known characters in the, in the movie. We're introduced to Marcy played by Gina, Janine Taylor. I, I'm sorry. I, I know I am going to be butchering names so bad. Um, she had, um, she pretty much just had two roles after this, just a, t a TV series and a TV movie. Um, Ned, played by Mark Nielsen, um, and he, he's actually done pretty good for himself, actually. He's had a few a few bit parts here and there afterwards uh, he's not done too bad so he's done really good but our big big role for a guy who sadly he does not count this movie as the movie that made him the star that he is today Ladies and gentlemen, we have Jack, played by Sick Mr. Kevin, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. This is his film role. This is his fifth film role, but it's one that he does not like talking about, I guess because it's a slasher, and it's really the movie that kind of started really skyrocketing his career. Um, Jack and Mark, uh, we 
pretty much Jack and Marcy are kind of the two lovebirds in this little trio. And Ned is basically your typical comedy relief character. Uh, pretty much nothing really to say on that, I think. Um, uh, yeah. They, they kind of just have this little back and forth in the truck. Like, Ned says he neglected to mention the downtown. They call this place Camp Blood. Marcy's like, well, next they're going to tell us there's poisonous snakes in the outhouse and crocodiles in the lake. <laughs> Jack comes back, well, nah, the crocodiles are in the cabin. <laughs> just just crazy little stuff like that in the movie. Um, so we see them pulling into the camp, and we see the Camp Crystal Lake sign, which is, honestly, that is an amazing-looking sign. I love it. I would love to have uh, a, a re... A recreation of that to hang on my wall or something it just i love that blue and yellow kind of color and then we meet this ned flanders from the simpson look-alike steve christie uh played by peter broware and peter broware i believe it's yeah he's Oh wow, yeah, he's he's had some pretty decent roles. Uh, a few bit parts here and there. Mostly looks like Yeah, but not too bad for coming off the movie. Um yeah, he clearly looks like Ned Flanders from this from the Simpsons with the big bushy mustache. The only difference is he's got this these big this big set of curly locked hair. So when they're pulling in, they see him chopping at a large stump. Um, Ned stops the truck. They all three get out and walk up to him. Uh, Steve calls for Alice, who is played by Andrea King, Adrian King, sorry. And she is basically going to be our main heroine for the film. Um, she's had a really decent uh, film career, it looks like. Uh, television uh nothing that i'm uh, looking through it nothing that really is like a big standout movie or television series but hey you know in hollywood it's always good to keep busy so she comes running and all together they pull up the stump uh they basically do all their quick introductions uh S steve will ask alice about bill and brenda and what jobs he has them doing. Um, we'll next move to see Alice repairing rain gutters on a cabin. Uh, Steve comes around the corner to help her. Uh, as soon as they get the... She's repairing the gutter by putting the finishing nails into place. And he's glancing through her sketchbook and compliments her art. As she, she's very talented. Um, especially... One of the one of the sketches is Steve when he's asleep, and pretty much um, we kind of get the feeling that through this interaction um, that there is something kind of going on with them maybe, but uh, Alice is not really happy being at the camp. She's not liking being there. I 
think she's kind of feeling like something is going to happen. And I'll kind of explain that a little bit later through the, through the episode. Um, he pleads with her to stay at least until Friday, Friday the 13th. And if she's not happy, he'll put her on the bus himself. And then he strokes her hair and that basically shows there's something going on between the two. Um, it never really goes into more than just that. And we go back to the uh, killer's point of view and we'll see Alice running down to the lake to find Bill, who is played by Harry Crosby. Now, Harry Crosby is actually the son of Bing Crosby. And he wanted to kind of separate himself from his father, so he gave acting a try. Um, didn't really have any film roles. Uh, Friday the 13th was his main film, and everything else was pretty much just uh, just bit parts on television. Um, and Bill is down by the lake, painting the lifeguard tower and some of the fencing. Um, there's really no interaction with the two, just a quick scene, just to pretty much introduce Bill into the, into the movie. Um, Annie has yet to still arrive. Steve, um, is in his Jeep. He's going to go into town, get some more supplies, I believe. Uh, he just pretty much quickly tells everybody, you know, what to work on when he's gone. And that as soon as Annie gets there to get her into the kitchen, I'm like, every time I see that scene, it's like, man, aren't you just an alpha male? I'm like, what, what do you want, Steve? Do you want her barefoot in the kitchen too? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and, um, then we get introduced to our lamp last, uh, camp counselor, Brenda played by Lori Bartum and, uh, Lori, Really, really hasn't done anything. It's like Friday the 13th is pretty much her last uh, Hollywood role because she only had like two episodes in uh, the TV series Emergency, one movie of The House of Seven Corpses, which she's uncredited in that. Um, she had... Uh, 80, she was in 84 episodes of a show called The Other World from 78 to 79. Never heard of that show, but granted, I wasn't born then. So, um, Brenda is down at the archery range setting up targets. And uh, lo and behold, she just sets up the last target and an arrow comes flying right in front of her and hits the target. And you hear Ned go, ta-da! She's like, are you crazy? And Ned's like, you want to see my trick shot? It's even better. She's still mad. She's like, I don't believe you. And Ned's just like, you know, you're beautiful when you're angry, sweetheart. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Are you going to help me or scare me to death? If you do that again, I'll tack you up to the wall to dry. <laughs> yeah, I love that sexy talk. Pretty much just your typical kind of teenage bickering back and forth. It's 
like maybe kind of hinting that they know each other and might be in a relationship. But anyway, we uh, we head back down um, to the next scene where we'll catch back up with Annie. She's walking down the road, and then we'll see a, a green Jeep pull up behind her. And Annie hops in and gets to ride the rest of the way to camp. We never see the driver, which usually that's always the first indication that something's not going to go right. They're making small talk. Annie's basically saying that she's always wanted to work with children. She hates when people call them kids. Sounds like little goats. But when you've had a dream as long as I have, you'll do anything. Just, you know, yada, yada, yada. But as Annie is talking, the Jeep goes right by the camp. And that kind of shocks Annie for a minute. She's like, wasn't that the road to the camp back there? But our driver, the Jeep, just keeps going faster. Annie's now getting really freaked out. She's wanting the driver to stop, but that doesn't work. So she does what anybody would do in that situation. She just opens up the door and proceeds to jump out out of a moving vehicle and she proceeds to run to the woods our jeep driver stops the jeep and actually pulls back a little bit and then we get um one uh one of the biggest tropes is the slow tacking ca camera following our 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 victim as the killer's following behind um, after after a little bit of that kind of scene, Annie is cornered into a tree. Pretty much killer is right in front of her, and then we have a knife uh, go right across her throat, um, getting us that red bloody goodness and the uh, second kill of the movie. Um, you got to remember, this movie was being filmed back in 1979 to 1980. So makeup effects were not the best yet. Because if you watch this movie, especially in a higher definition like I did, you can clearly see where the prosthetic of Annie's neck does not, the color does not match with her skin tone. There, There's a definite mismatch going on. But hey, like I said, Older film, it's not going to be like today's modern, you know, modern makeup techniques that can make anything look really good or, God forbid, CGI and just looks like crap. Um, though, I do have an issue with this kill, though. Um, in these movies, there's always a trope that the teen, the, the teenager uh, that gets killed in these movies is usually always shown as either smoking, smoking drugs, drinking, or having sex, which are the signs that you look for. Um, so it, it's, it's a little weird that she's kind of killed off for me anyway. I mean, that, that could always be something a little different. So we, we go back to camp. Everyone is working together to put the floating docks into place. Also swimming around, playing, goofing off. You know, what's a little work without some play, right? Um, Bill and Alice are laying down next to each other, just soaking in the sun. 
Then Jack and Marcy walk over, and Marcy just immediately is standing over, over um, and she goes, "So you two ready to get back to work?" Bill and Alice are like, "Yeah." Now this part is <laughs> to me have me cracking up more than anything else in this movie. Bill, as he's getting up, Jack is standing right above him, and. Bill has his eyes closed. As he's getting up, he opens up his eyes and he gets a full-on view of Jack's beanstalk outlined in his tight swim trunks. I, I'm telling you what, somebody at the casting department, when they casted Kevin Bacon, on the day that scene had to be shot, somebody went to wardrobe and said, you give him the tightest pair of swimming trunks you can find. Because... You just see pure outline of Kevin Bacon's <laughs> summer sausage. <laughs> Bill just does this biggest disgusted face you've ever seen. Now, Ned is apparently having some issues swimming because he's just like thrashing around and screaming for help. Uh, Jack and Marcy run down. Uh, they jump in the water, try to save him. They bring him up to the dock, and uh, Brenda starts giving him mouth-to-mouth. <laughs> he grabs her for a kiss, and it turns out he was just playing a dumbass prank. Of course, everybody's getting on to him, so it's pretty much going to reveal that he is just a major, major a-hole. <laughs> Sorry, I, I mean, I should probably say asshole, but I'm trying to limit my uh, my foul language. It's, a, it's the premiere episode. Leave me alone. Um, we go to Alice uh, in her cabin, and she's getting changed after the swimming. She looks down by her dresser, and she sees a black snake. This terrifies her, and she yells for Bill, uh, who just happened to be outside cutting weeds with a machete. He runs in, and she wants him to deal with the snake. Um, the others, upon hearing her scream, they run into, and they just... <laughs> They proceed to start looking for the snake, but they end up tearing that room apart. It's it's nuts for all this for just a little snake, especially. Uh, I mean, just a, a little snake. It's nothing. Sadly, um, in doing research on this on this film and looking it up. Uh, Bill kills a snake, but if I am right on my research on this, that was an actual snake that they kill with the machete. Um, honestly, if that's true, I mean, I don't like snakes. I have never have and I never will, but I don't condone killing of an animal, especially for a, a movie effect. Well, after that and after everything... Um, everything kind of slows down. Um, we have a uh, a motorcycle cop uh, by the name of Officer Dorf pulls up in front of Marcy or Brenda. Officer Dorf is played by actor Ron Milky, and he looks like he actually has had um, he's had some pretty good 
movie roles, it looks like. Uh, Return to Salem's Lot, which was after Friday the 13th. Grand Isle. Some I've heard of. Some pretty good movie roles. <laughs> he and he, I mean he plays this cop character really good because he just plays a tremendous asshole. <laughs> and uh, sadly, we see Ned dancing around the background in a Native American headdress. He's in his underwear <laughs> with just a T-shirt wrapped around him. And as soon as he sees the Officer Dorf, he's like, oh, shit. Officer Dorf just really starts uh, asking the 20 questions of who they are. They respond to their counselors. He's like, Christy pays you for this? <laughs> Ned comes up and he's like, yeah, right. I'm just fooling around. <laughs> Dorf responds back, can it, Cochise? <laughs> Which is definitely a phrase you cannot get away with in, in today's movies. Um, Jack comes walking in. He walks in between uh, Marcy and Brenda and Officer Dorf. And he's, he comments on the bike. He's like, oh, cool bike. Officer Dorf grabs him and he's like, and he asks, what have you been smoking, boy? Jack replies, smoking. Don't smoke. Causes cancer. <laughs> Dorf is just like, you know what I mean. What, you just get off the spaceship or something? Come on. Colombian gold, man. Grash. Hash, the weed, Jaybird, the purple Urkel. He's talking about marijuana. Come on. Um, pretty much is that after all this little interaction, Dor finally explains what he's doing out there. He's searching for Crazy Ralph. Um, pretty much is that when Ralph drinks a whole lot, he just runs around the town preaching his gospel of, of camp blood, and his wife gets worried... So she has the cops go out and looking for him because what ends up happening is he spends the night in jail and then Officer Dorf has to go in the court the next morning as arraignment, I guess. So it's just it's just a bunch of crazy stuff with that. Dorf gets a call on a station that he needs to report in. He tells the counselors, you keep your noses clean. You'll be hearing from me if you don't. We ain't going to stand for any of this weirdness out here. It's a camp. Of course it's going to be weird out there. So that's all said and done. And Dorf rides off. Uh, we'll find Annie cleaning up the kitchen in the counselor's cabin. And she goes to put some supplies into the pantry door. And she's surprised to see that Ralph is in there. Ralph starts rambling on. I'm the messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. It's got a death curse. The others run in to Alice's aid, and pretty much they're just trying to walk Ralph out of there. Um, which they get him outside the cabin, and you see his bike is sitting up beside a tree. And I'm... And I'm looking at that scene, I'm just like, wait, Officer Dwarf was just here, and you didn't notice the bicycle sitting next to a tree? That's just, that, that, that's bad storytelling on, 
from my opinion, but eh, just my opinion. Um, Alice is still watching Ralph as as he's hopping on the as he's about to hop on his bike. He looks back, and his last words to them all are, "You're doomed. You're all doomed." And he rides off. Now, we're getting ready to transition to night as it starts. Uh, so we go from day to night, basically. Uh, Jack and Marcy are walking around the lake. They s decide to stop and make out a little bit. Uh, we, we find Ned, who's further down, uh, kind of watching them, just like probably thinking to himself, oh, that's cute. Well, he starts whistling and walking away towards some of the other cabins. And he looks up to notice that there's a figure in a face covering heading inside the cabin. He calls out to them a few times and then decides to follow them inside. Bad choice there, Nettie boy. <laughs> and we get this really interesting um, interaction between Jack and Marcy at the lake. Um... We start getting these loud, uh, these bright flashes in front of their faces, which is supposed to indicate uh, thunder. Jack is like, it's going to storm. It's going to tear down that valley like a son of a gun. And uh, Marcy then starts to tell Jack that she's had a fear of thunderstorms ever since she was a kid. And this strange dream. She's like, yeah, I've had this dream about five or six times. When I'm in a thunderstorm and it's raining really hard, it sounds like pebbles when it hits the ground. I can hear it. I try to block out the sound with my hands, only it doesn't work. The sound keeps getting louder and louder, and then the rain turns to blood, and it washes away in little rivers, and then the sound stops. Jack just like... is just like... It's just a dream. And she goes, I know. It's my shower dream. God, just such a line. Um, now the rain's coming down. Jack and Marcy run inside the cabin uh, to get out of the rain. And the, they'll, we both start seeing them just start slowly peeling off the top layer of their clothing till Jack's basically in his pants and Marcy's just in a top in her underwear and they start to fool around on, on one of the beds. Um, now we go back to our, to our counselor's cabin where Bill, Brenda and Alice are, they're just hanging out and Brenda's bored and doesn't really know what to do. And she's like, she comes up with this brilliant idea of uh, they're going to play Monopoly. Alice is like, I hate Monopoly. Trust me, Alice, I hate Monopoly as well. It's When you're not good with math, Monopoly is your worst enemy. But uh, Brenda goes, not the way I play it. You don't. And Bill's like, what? How you play it? And Brenda's like, we're going to play Strip Monopoly. I'll be the shoot. Alice is just like, her mind is like blown. She's like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> and Bill, <laughs> and Bill's like, well, what if Steve walks in? And Brenda's like, oh, we'll give him a handicap. He can keep his boots on. Everything else goes. 
Now it's easy. Instead of paying rent, you pay clothes. Bill can be the banker, unless, of course, he's chicken. And I want to say she asks where they keep some good weed. Like, a, I'm guessing they keep some drugs hidden in the cabin somewhere. So, we go back to Jack and Mark. Jack and Marcy, who are, of course, they're having the typical slasher movie sex time, which, honestly, I don't mind this scene. This scene is actually really done. It kind of makes you think of, like, your mom's soap opera. You know, it's very tastely done. You, you see a little boob, nothing too egregious. I mean, dude, don't even get me started on the on the Friday the 13th remake movie, it was almost like a damn porno when they were shooting that one. But that that's that's another review down the road. So, Marcy gets up because she needs to go use the bathroom. She only puts on her underwear, a shirt, and a raincoat. So, Jack... Jack puts on his tank top. He's still covered up from the bottom. He decides he's just going to lay in bed, just basking in the afterglow of a good sex time. And he pulls out a joint, lights that sucker up, he's laying back smoking. Then all of a sudden, from underneath the bed, a hand comes out, grabs him by the forehead to hold him tightly, and we get an arrow comes protruding through his neck. And I go back, I'll go back to the Annie uh, kill. It's kind of the same thing. It, it's a great effect, but you just see that color difference, especially watching it in a high-def format, that the skin does not match Kevin's skin coat. So you, you can clearly tell that it's fake, but hey, like I said, it's still a good... Still a good scene. So, basically that makes... Oh, 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 Okay, I completely forgot. Before Jack gets... When Jack and Marcy are making love, the, actually, during that scene, the camera pans up and you find Ned in the top bunk, dead, with a, with a slashed throat. Sorry, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> first episode jitters you know but that actually means that out of the counselors Annie's dead Ned's dead and Jack is dead making Jack our third kill so Marcy makes it to the to the shower slash um, toilet building enters um, and our killer falls in behind her slowly um, Marcy's in one of the stalls. She's, you know, doing her thing and she reads some of the writing on the stall. She hears some noise from outside, but with her, she probably thinks it's Jack, so she pays it no mind. As she finishes up and she walks to the sink to wash her hands and all that, she's talking in the mirror and she does this bad Catherine Hepburn, uh, impression I'm not even going to remotely try it. I'm not even, you know what? I'm not even going to say the line because it's just so goofy. Um, 
and she she hears another noise. This time it's coming from the shower room. And this time she kind of thinks maybe it's just Ned playing a prank. So she walks over to the room, opens the door, and she starts to look behind some of the shower curtains. So far she's not seen anything. As she checks the final curtain, and just as she turns around, we get uh, a, a shot of an axe, which the killer is holding, held high, and... Before she could even act, she barely gets a scream out and she gets an axe straight to the face. Um, that's actually a really good scene. I think that's probably the better scene of the movie. But, anywho, uh, we, we move back to uh, the counselor's cabin again. Um, Apparently, Bill and Brenda have been doing super bad <laughs> at uh, Strip Monopoly because they have barely any clothes on. Alice is still fully clothed. And they all three just decide, you know what, let's just call the night. And uh, Brenda gathers her stuff and she's going to go to her cabin. And uh, Bill and Alice uh, decide to stay and kind of clean things up. Uh, we actually now move on to back to uh, to Steve. It turns out that Steve uh, decided to stop at the local diner, uh, and he's finishing up a, a cup of coffee. Uh, the waitress Sandy comes by and she says, "Steve, can I get you anything else?" He replies, "No, no, Sandy, just a coffee. I have to get back to the camp." I got a fresh, I got fresh counselors out there. Real babes in the woods, if you know what I mean. He then asks Sandy what he owes her. And she replies, a hot night on the town, Steve. And they both laugh. And he gives her, he gives her the money. She goes and makes the change. And he tells her to keep it. And he leaves. But Sandy you you just got to watch the movie because it is clearly like she is just, she is giving him eyes. She wants a piece of Steve. <laughs> she wants to ride that mustache. I'm betting. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But then we, we head back to camp and Brenda now is walking to the, uh, to the shower building. She starts to brush her teeth. She looks over to see the door to the showers is open. Pretty much she just thinks nothing of it and continues her business. Uh, but we get a shot at the one shower stall that's in front of the door and we see a hand reach from behind the shower curtain. Brenda doesn't notice, of course. She gives her hair a few brushes. She gives one more glance over at the showers. There's nothing to see there. And leaves but the camera goes back and we see the the light hanging from the ceiling is kind of swaying back and forth so it's clearly obvious that somebody has moved uh, since she left um, now we get back to Steve who's uh, seems to be having Jeep trouble um, around 
Uh, I'm not sure exactly where he's supposed to be at on that. But uh, exactly how far he is from the camp. But uh, behind him, from around the corner of the road, we see uh, a patrol car come by with the lights flashing. And it is Sergeant Turney um, pulling up. And Sergeant Turney is played by Ron Carroll. Um, he's had some... He's had some pretty... He's had some pretty good roles after this. Uh, Spring Break, the 1983 movie... Um, do, 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 do. Uh, House to the Second Story as a deputy. Uh, Deep Star Six from 1989. Uh, he was actually in an he was in an episode of Dawson's Creek. He was in The Producers in 2005 as a stormtrooper. <laughs> Uh, oh, Stormtrooper Mel. Okay, I, I know what it means by Stormtrooper in that. Okay, so he's, he's had a pretty decent career. And he does a really good job in this, too. I mean, it's very believable that he's a police officer. Uh, Steve runs up to meet him, and he's offered a ride back to the camp. Now, we're back to Brenda again. She's in her cabin, in her nightgown. She lights a candle. Uh, she decides she's going to read a book in bed a little bit before she calls it, calls it a night. We, uh, hear a voice come calling out from outside. Help me. Now she's, she's had enough of the day. She really believes it's probably Ned pulling another one of his pranks. So she ignores it, but then we get another yell in a female tone help me she heads outside to investigate with only a f flashlight rain raincoat in the rain she follows the voice uh for a while she comes to some steps she goes down the steps she clearly has no idea where she's going she walks away from the steps a little bit and all of a sudden Massive floodlights turn on in her face, blinding her completely. And we find out that she had walked right onto the center of the archery range. She's not being able to see. She's like, this isn't, this is not funny anymore. And she's, of course, like anybody would do, you start backing away. Well, she's backing closer and closer to an archery target. We then switch away from that from that scene to an outside view of the counselor's cabin and we just hear a scream and pretty much telling us that Brenda is now gone. Alice is inside sitting on the couch, strumming a little bit on the guitar. She gets up and tends the fire a little bit and Bill comes in basically busting through the door, saying that the generator is working fine. Alice tells Bill that she claims she heard uh, Brenda scream. But Bill's like, how could she hear How could she hear a scream over the wind and the rain? 
But then Alice says, well, I also saw the lights of the archery range on. Bill's like, you're crazy. He, he, pretty much he's got the look of like she's crazy. He goes and looks out the window. Turns out they're off. But they decide they're both going to go and investigate the range. On the way, they stop by Brenda's cabin to find it empty. But on checking her bed, they find a bloody axe under the covers. The same axe that was used to kill Marcy. I'm, we're pretty much guessing that it is the same axe. Well, they decide to keep moving. And they stop by Jack and Ned's cabin. It's completely empty. There's no bodies anywhere. Only thing is there's clothes all on the beds. And not a soul in sight. They go by the showers. They check each stall and going outside. Alice now getting really freaked out. She suggests they call someone. Bill replies, if this is a joke, he'll brain them. <laughs> so... They make it to the camp office to find that the door's locked. Uh, they try looking for a key, but they can't find anything. So Alice grabs a piece of lumber and breaks a glass, a panel of glass on the door. Once inside, they see the phone's dead. They notice a payphone, and they're like, "Okay, let's look. Let's look for some change." So they're going to start looking through all the desk drawers and everywhere until they can find it. Now, for us, the camera pans over on the outside of the office building to show that the phone line is cut. Alice then says the payphone is dead, too. So, pretty much all communication in the camp is cut off. Well, since that plan is not going to work, they run to Ned's truck and try to start it. Bill takes a look under the hood and says it's all wet. So, I'm guessing a fuel line was cut or something because honestly the hood was down so it's got to be something like that Alice uh, makes a suggestion that they just hike out of there Bill says it's a 10 mile hike to the nearest crossroad and they should just wait for Steve well now we go back to Steve and Sergeant Turney riding back to camp uh we notice, as a viewer, that the rain's starting to end. Sergeant is talking. It's bad enough we have Friday the 13th. We gotta have a full moon, too? He's like, we keep statistics. We have more accidents, more rapes, more robberies, more homicides, more of everything when there's a full moon. It upsets people. Makes them nuts. Steve replies, you're making a science out of coincidence. Well, pretty much after that little short conversation, a call comes in over the radio that there has been a head-on collision and that the sergeant is needed at the scene. Sergeant Turney drops Steve off on the side of the road, apologizes to him, and U-turns to leave. Steve starts jogging down the road to the camp. Well, Steve makes it to the, makes it to the sign for Camp Crystal Lake, but all of a sudden... A light shines in his face from behind the sign. He's barely able to see. And we have Steve looking right into the camera. Essentially, you know, looking the our killer right in the face. And he's like, hello, who is that? As he steps closer, he can now tell who it is. He's like, oh, hi. 
What are you doing out in this mess, he asks. As he takes another step forward, he's, at, he's stabbed. So we basically know Steve is dead. Now, now we're back in the camp and we get our camera, our killer's camera view eye. And they're walking. And they're walking into the generator shed. And then we get an outside shot of the camp from, I believe, from the position of the lake. And we see all the lights go out. Alice and Bill are back in the counselor's cabin with kerosene lanterns. Bill decides he's going to go out and check on the generator. Um, he's pretty much the one that has the most knowledge on uh, gas generators. I believe his uncle had a cabin and he used to work on it. Um, Alice wonders if she wants to go with him. He says no and then she should get some rest. Bill makes it over to the shack and he starts looking over the generator. He checks. He sees that it's full of gas. He starts kind of looking around, um, not really seeing anything. And we get this really fast jump back to Alice in the main cabin she wakes up yelling bill bill now um i'm gonna i'm gonna mention this again in a little bit because i think this will um i i got i got some thoughts on this scene right here um she walked into the kitchen to put on a tea kettle to make coffee and she puts instant coffee into two cups i mean my God, girl, instant coffee. Ugh. Uh, well, she goes into the she goes into the pantry to get a big jar of sugar. Um, after a moment, she decides, you know what? I need to go look for Bill. She goes to the shed. The door is wide open. She looks inside. His raincoat's on the ground. Not seeing him in there anywhere. She walks out of the door. And grabs the door to pull it closed. And then we see Bill's body is hanging on the outside of the door. Pinned by arrows. One through his left eye. One through his heart. And another, I want to say it's through his crotch. But that does not look like cause of death. Because there is another, it looks like there's a throat slash. So, now, this is the reason why I want to go back to the part when Annie wakes up yelling, Bill, Bill. It's obviously to imply that when she does that, that's when Bill is killed. And I'm kind of wondering if there's like some little psychic connection to the, to the, to the deaths in this movie. I don't think anyone's ever explained it, but um, that's just kind of my, my theory on it. So, Alice then, uh, of course, she run, she screams, and then she runs back to the to the cabin. Uh, she slams the door, she takes a rope, and she wraps it around the doorknob, throws the other end over a rafter, ties it to something. She's basically finding anything she can to put in front of the door to make some kind of a barricade. Which is honestly kind of stupid because it's obvious the door opens from the outside. You pull to open the door. 
So, yeah, doing the rope is going to help you out, but putting stuff in front of the door is not going to do anything. Somebody's just going to be able to walk over that. But, anywho, I mean, you're in a panic, so I, I can get that. Um, she basically, she arms herself with a baseball bat, uh, grabs the lantern, and she decides to go into the kitchen. She looks around, she finds a big meat skewer as her second uh, defensive weapon option. She starts closing uh, the window curtains. Uh, as she does that, she thinks she hears something coming from the ceiling, so she's looking up. She's walking around. She stops hearing something, so she takes a second to lean against the refrigerator to catch her breath and from the window right in front of her right next to the refrigerator comes right through that window it's Brenda's body now the thing about this is it looks like Brenda has a bunch of ropes wrapped around her so it would seem that our killer had set her body up to be for that window throw in which I mean you gotta give it to the killer finding finding all the way to do these setups now Alice is of course in complete shock she falls to the ground she's crawling on the ground keeping her eyes on Brenda and she makes it to the kitchen door she gets up she she starts to get up, but her coat gets caught on the oven. She she fights. She gets out of her coat. She walks back into the main room, and from the window, she sees lights pulling up to the cabin. Now, she looks outside, and it's a Jeep. Now, for her, she's thinking, oh, my God, Steve's back. So, being, you know, scared and dumb, she unties the rope moves all the stuff away from the door, runs out yelling, Steve, Steve. But it, she's only met by an unknown woman who, Allison goes, who are you? The woman replied, well, I'm Mrs. Voorhees, an old friend of the Chrisleys. Now, this is our big, big star of the movie, uh, Betsy Palmer. Betsy Palmer is an award-winning actress. She's um, 16, uh, 62 film and TV roles to, to her credit. Um, uh, Love American Style was a show before here, I think. TV series... Yeah, I mean, she has a huge uh, list and credits. It's just a really amazing actress. Um, let's see. She... She was... She won a special career award for Penny Dreadful for, in 2001. Um... She's she's an amazing actress. Um, sadly, we lost her in 
in a 2015, uh, when, I want to say that's when we lost her, 2015 is when she passed away, yep, it was 2015, um, now she almost was not going to do this movie, um, I, in doing, in checking out, um, specials and um retrospectives uh she gets a call from her agent about doing the film um okay yeah uh she stated that she would never have played the role of Mrs. Voorhees um, in this movie if it was not for the fact that she needed a new car. <laughs> Which... <laughs> that That's really... That's really funny. Um, yeah, and I mean, she was... Um, she was going to work for 10 days up in New Jersey. She'll make a thousand dollars a day. Um, and like, as she finds out it's a horror movie, she's like, Oh no, it's bad. I'm not, I'm known as a game show player. Uh, she said, send me the script. Uh, she's, she thought the script was a piece of shit and then no one was going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, also there was a um, there was another part about that when she's asking about um, her son Jason and um, like well what 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 is Jason like and I believe one of the, I believe it was Sean Cunningham, uh, the director, or one of the writers told him, "Well, Jason's, um, and I don't like using this term, but it's what they it's what they called him, a mongoloid." And she's like, "Oh, what?" It's very shockingly. Basically, if for what people don't know is Jason, it, her son was uh, has a had a physical deformity, so he. Um, so she, he was pretty much like a, a special child and, and, uh, she of course worked for the, uh, the Mrs. Voorhees character worked at the camp so that pretty much he could be with her all the time. Um, she was very protective of her son. Now, now, now we get back to Alice and Mrs. Voorhees. Uh, Alice runs to hold Mrs. Voorhees and she attempts to calm Alice down. Uh, Alice is just rambling on about Bill and Brenda being dead. Uh, Mrs. Voorhees is like, she can't keeps saying, I can't understand you. I can't understand you. You're, you're, you need to calm down. And she's like, but Brenda's in there. And she's like, okay, show me, show me. They walk inside. Mrs. Voorhees goes into the kitchen and upon seeing Brenda's body, she's like, Oh, my Lord. So young. So pretty. Oh, what monster could have done this? Remember that line. That'll come back. 
um, Alice, of course, she's just trying to make sense of the whole thing. Now, this is when everything starts to turn and the big reveal. Uh, Mrs. Voorhees uh, really starts going into this monologue. She's like, Steve should never have opened the camp back up. Did you know a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying att any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working that, working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, dear. Now... This is such a really cool scene because you have a facial sh a face shot of uh, Betsy Palmer, and we see a flashback scene overlaid over, and it's showing who we are guessing to be Jason thrashing around the water. He's having trouble swimming, and we hear him yell, help me, help me, mommy, help me, help, mommy, mommy, help. And then Mrs. Voorhees replies, I am, Jason, I am. Alice is just still so shocked, and Mrs. Voorhees goes, you see, Jason was my son, and today is his birthday. Friday the 13th. Now, Mrs. Voorhees, essentially this is the scene and part when she just snaps. She yells, you let him drown. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. And she pulls a large hunting knife from her, from her side pouch. Thus, look, says, look what you did to him a second time. thus revealing that she's a killer and she pretty much blames all the camp counselors at the camp for what happened to her son, Jason. She goes after, off onto the attack onto Alice with the knife. Alice, I don't know how she grabbed it, but she gets a golf club, uh, hits Mrs. Voorhees in the stomach, knocking the wind out of her, and buying herself some time, she runs outside to the Jeep. Now, She's thinking, this is my chance. I'm getting out of here. She opens the door only to see that in the passenger seat is Annie, our first kill for the movie. So, Mrs. Voorhees, Miss Pamela Voorhees, all this time has been driving around with a dead body in the passenger seat. Woo! Cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> that's, uh, that's being generous on that one. Well, Alice is shocked, of course, so she runs away from the Jeep and further away from the cabin and only to have Steve's body fall hanging upside down with a knife in his chest. Which, as I had said before, with uh, Brenda's body coming in through the window with apparently being tied up for dramatic effect... 
it's so surprising that Mrs. Voorhees had that much time to set those two bodies up. But <laughs> still, it, it, it was a, it, I mean, back in 1980, that had, that definitely had to be a very good jump scare. So that of course scares, scares Alice to death, but we go back into the cabin. Mrs. Mrs. Voorhees is starting to retain her wits to herself and she gets up, she steps outside, she looks a few times and then she spots Alice running into the darkness of the camp. Now, this is where we get into more of Pamela's psychosis because she does a childlike voice. She goes, kill her, mommy. Kill her. Don't let her get away, mommy. Don't let her live. And now back to her own voice, she goes, I won't, Jason. I won't. This is just showing us right now that she now, in in her mind, she has the voice of Jason. And she's and she believes that she that Jason wants her to get all the revenge on anybody who's involved with the camp which i think i mean that was probably a very interesting twist there um alice is still running through the camp she uh finds a, a work/storage building I can't really tell what it is, but it's got a sliding barn door. She opens that up real quick and closes it behind her. Lights are all still off, but it's got uh, the door has uh, windows on there. So she's trying to stay low, and she's just searching any everything she can to find something to defend herself with. Now, Mrs. Voorhees actually... Uh, returns to the generator shed and starts the generator back up, thus turning all the camp lights back on. Now, the lights on in that shed that Alice is at comes on. She's startled by the lights, but luckily she found herself a rifle. Now, she's trying to find the bullets for the rifle, and she's just like, where are the damn bullets? Where are the damn bullets? And she she's by a desk and she sees that some of the the two of the drawers are chained and locked together so she figures the bullets are going to be in there so taking the butt of the gun she attempts to break the lock of, with the rifle but doing so causes enough noise to let Mrs. Voorhees find her and she opens the door and this this is a really cool part because we got probably I want to say this is maybe like our second kind of standoff between the two now um, Alice is still crouched by the desk and she she's pointing the gun at uh, Mrs. Voorhees uh, Pamela says come dear it'll be easier for you than it was for Jason then once again, in Jason's voice, she then again says, Kill her, Mommy. Kill her. She steps towards Alice, and, I mean, Alice has no choice. She just th throws the unloaded rifle at Pamela, and she Alice starts moving, moving back away 
from her. And I mean, she's just grabbing anything that she that she can to toss at her. She tosses a bale of twine. There's some other items here. I mean, it, it's essentially it's like trying to throw um, like tiny missiles at Godzilla. It's not doing jack. Um, Mrs. Voorhees walks Alice in, back into a corner. Uh, Alice gets slapped two times. Voorhees grabs her, throws her over her over to a pile of camp mattresses, continues to slap her a few more times. Uh, she then gives Alice one more good throw, which, which Alice crashes through a table. I mean, this is like Monday Night Raw wrestling type stuff right here. Um, this is Voorhees goes to pick her up one more time, but... Alice, grabbing the rifle again, hits her in the stomach and then right across the face with the butt of the rifle. Uh, knocking uh, Mrs. Voorhees back onto the top pile of the mattresses. <laughs> Probably those poor, piss-stained camper mattresses. <laughs> Who knows what kind of nastiness is on those. But this buys Alice the time to run run away from the shed. Uh, after she leaves, um, Mrs. Voorhees finally comes to, I mean, after taking that butt shot, I'm surprised she even got up. Um, as she goes after Alice, uh, we're, we go to an area that's covered with a lot of trees and, and what appears to be a bunch of, of the floating docks for the lake stacked in a pile. <laughs> this, this scene's kind of funny for me because Mrs. Voorhees comes walking through the trees and she's like crouched over too. She kind of looks like the Wolfman from the <laughs> from the Wolfman uh, Universal movie monster. <laughs> just <laughs> kind of expect her just to be growling. Um but she walks, she ends up walking past the dock pile, and as she's clearly out of frame and further down, uh, we notice that Alice slowly raises up from behind the pile and proceeds to run the other direction. Um, we have this really, we have another one of these nature kind of shots of the moon, and we get a overlay of uh, Mrs. Voorhees' mouth. Once again, it's Jason talking like the little child. Kill her, Mommy. Kill her. She can't hide. No place to hide. Um, Alice then returns to the counselor's cabin, um, back into the kitchen. I believe we're showing this from a different side of the kitchen. I wasn't sure. Uh, she takes a moment to look over Brenda's body on the floor again, which... Honestly, is a little odd. It's like, yeah, Alice, Brenda's still there. I don't think she's going to get up and help you. <laughs> it's just kind of weird that we get that shot. But she closes the, the window curtains. She shuts off the light. At first, uh, she thinks about kneeling down in a corner of the kitchen. But <laughs> then she realizes that's just a stupid idea. So instead, she goes into the pantry um, where, from when uh, Crazy Ralph 
was in there, and she locks it from the inside. Um, Alice now, thinking that she's found a pretty decent hiding spot, uh, tries to take a break. She leans against the door, but then we hear Mrs. Voorhees uh, in the kitchen. Uh, we hear sounds of stuff crashing from outside the door. We can see uh, through the through the slots on the pantry door that the lights come on in the kitchen. Alice grabs the doorknob just in case as we see Mrs. Voorhees shadow walk past the door through the slits in each of the panels. After a moment, uh, Alice thinks that Mrs. Voorhees has left. She lets go of the doorknob and kneels down. After a few seconds, we see the doorknob start to turn back and forth. And Mrs. Voorhees realizes that she's in there. So Mrs. Voorhees starts to beat on the pantry door. Alice searches the room for anything she can grab. Um, and really the only thing that she can find is a cast iron skillet. So she, she basically takes a tennis player pose, man. She is, she has got that hand. She is double gripping that cast iron handle. She is ready. Mrs. Voorhees, um, manages to bust down a panel of the door with a machete, spots Alice, does a pretty creepy smile, just keeps looking at Alice. She reaches her hand inside and undoes the lock, opens the door and steps inside. Now, this scene, this was another scene that made me laugh because of how stupid it is. They, Alice and Mrs. Voorhees didn't have this such a silly skillet versus machete duel. <laughs> Mrs. Voorhees just taking these wild swings. Alice, Alice is just blocking it with the skillet. And then finally, Alice ends up just whacking Mrs. Voorhees upside the head. And I swear there is a Looney Tunes... Uh, like sounding cast iron skillet hitting the head sound just like a bong <laughs> Mrs. Voorhees falls back falls backwards to the floor Alice still not letting that pan out of her hand she goes over and with her foot rolls Mrs. Voorhees over to see a small pool of blood well Alice then leaves the cabin now we see Alice walking towards the lifeguard tower and swimming area by the lake. She is hopefully starting to believe that everything is over. So she kneels down by a canoe by the lake and tries to collect herself, looking into the dark, reflective lake. She's looking at her own reflection, and then all of a sudden, right behind her, Mrs. Voorhees' reflection appears. Mrs. Voorhees, armed with her machete, takes another wild swing. But Alice, ha having grabbed a boat paddle to shield herself, blocks the machete. It ends up cutting the paddle into two. Mrs. Voorhees takes another swing. But with one half of the paddle, Alice knocks the machete out of her hand. Both of, the, both of the ladies at this point are really starting to get worn out. You can just really tell that this night has started to take its toll as really the only thing they can let 
left for them to do is just to grab each other, fall to the ground, and start wrestling on the on the edge of the lake. And after a few times of just rolling on the ground, uh, Mrs. Voorhees pinning Alice, trying to choke her. Uh, Alice is able to muster enough strength to throw her off, and she makes it over to the machete. And as Mrs. Voorhees starts to get up and turn around, we get this really cool um, slow motion sequence of Alice taking the machete pretty much like a like swinging a baseball bat and just cut, cuts Mrs. Voorhees' heads off. Now, after, after Mrs. Voorhees' head is cut off, this it the scene is still slow and you see the headless body um standing there now it's clearly not uh Betsy Palmer in in the scene because if you look at the hands of Mrs. Voorhees you can see you can see all the hair on the back of the hands and on the knuckles. It's clearly a guy's hands. <laughs> so that is just just one of these marvels of uh, um, bad bad shots in films that some people don't catch, but you catch later on after watching. So after after now really knowing that Mrs. Voorhees is finally dead. And Alice is safe. Alice walks over to a canoe, gets in, and with her hand, she paddles out to the middle of the lake. Why she goes out to the middle of the lake, I have no idea. I'm guessing if she doesn't know that it is all truly over, being out in the middle of the lake would be the safest bet. So that that scene transitions, and now it's morning at the lake and we see a shot Alice's the canoe is right in the middle of the lake Alice's in the canoe she's laying on the edge of it in the lake her hands kind of kind of touching the water and then we get to a shot from the other uh, back on on the land and we see a patrol car with lights flashing uh, pull into the camp uh, we got two officers to get out uh, one starts walking to the lake. Um, this whole scene, it, there's no um, voice audio or anything. There's just very somber music uh, playing by. And you can see that the officer is yelling out to Alice. She's hearing him and she's kind of starting to come to. And she's slowly getting up. She's kind of now in a in a s sitting position in the canoe, kind of thinking, look on her face, kind of like, it's finally all over. But then, out of nowhere behind her, we see a boy pop out of the lake, just uh, moss-covered, this... Moss -covered, this this fig facial deformed boy come out of the lake, grabbing her from behind and both going into the lake. Well, 
switches over and it shows Alice waking up screaming in a hospital bed. The doctor and nurse try to calm her down and they end up giving her a sedative. Now we're reintroduced to Sergeant Turney is there and he tells her that her parents are on the way to get her. Alice um, pretty much uh, asks the sergeant if anyone else is alive. He tells her no. He says, in fact, they weren't even sure if she was alive until they got her from the middle of the lake. Alice still kind of, it kind of looks like the sedative might be kicking in a little bit on her. She asks, the boy, is he dead too? Sergeant goes, who? Alice, Alice goes, the boy, Jason. Jason? In the lake, the one, the one who attacked me. The one who pulled me underneath the water. He's like, ma'am, we didn't find any boy. But then he's still there. And we get this front view of Alice's face. And kind of the camera starts to pan out a little bit. It switches over to a shot of the lake. And we see the ripples on the lake and the somber music and then we fade to black and the credits so that is Friday the 13th uh, from 1980 I mean this is for me this is probably one of my top um, horror movies uh, slashers that I like to watch uh, now and then it when I was getting into horror movies, uh, after my dad had passed away in 2014, I, uh, I was trying to toughen myself up ways I could. Um, and after I had spent my first time in the hospital on, um, on a psychological hold for my thoughts of suicide, um, I, I tried to really, um, change things I, I started doing a lot more volunteer work in my community uh, I was donating blood but when I was volunteering my time at um, my local food bank I met the lady who was running it at the time and one other guy who helped out there and they were you know talking to me getting to know me and had found out I had never watched these movies and the guy, he ends up giving me, uh, letting me borrow his copies of the remake of Friday the 13th and the Rob Zombie version of Halloween. Uh, he, he basically gave me like a, a, he made a bet with me. He said, you're going to watch these and when you bring them back, I'm, excuse me, I'm going to give you a quiz. I was like, all right, buddy, I'll do it. <laughs> Long story short. I blew his mind when I brought the tapes back, but that really helped me kind of grow a little bit and expand my movie uh, watching. So probably a few years later, I ended up going to Best Buy. I found the complete uh, Friday the 13th set, uh, price smashed it with Amazon up there, and I've had it, and I've watched every movie. Um, I've watched a ton more of of horror movies I never would have watched. I mean, this, essentially this movie 
led me to watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. It led me to watch all the Halloween movies. It um, it led me to actually watch The Exorcist for the first time just this year and finally see that movie, a movie I've always dreaded to watch. So it, it has been my gateway movie into a whole different genre of films. But uh, yeah, that's... Uh, so for me, this is definitely a movie that I recommend everybody at least watch. Uh, if you like it, I highly recommend it adding into your collections. Um, and that is going to be it for the premiere episode of Back Row Reviews. Um, I, I highly thank everybody for uh, spending this time and listening to me uh, ramble on about a movie that... Um, I've enjoyed and I hope that others will enjoy too. Um, right now I'm not entirely sure of when I will get the, uh, next episode out, but I know I'm going to get this out on Spotify. That is where, um, I am posting all of my, uh, episodes at, which I will, I believe. I will definitely be posting the link. Um, a cool thing about Spotify for anybody that listens on that is that on every episode, you can actually um, interact with the episode. Uh, you can there's a question function, and you can engage. I think you have to look for, I'm not sure if it's in the app or you might be able to do it online too, but you can actually tell me what you thought of the episode. Tell me if I stuff I need to work on. Was this enjoyable? Is this something that you want to see more of from me? Um, cause my, I, uh, my goal for this podcast is just to talk about movies I've seen, uh, maybe some first time views, uh, of movies I've never seen before. And, I'm going to give you my first thoughts. Um, also, if anybody would want to, I do have a, if the, if you, if you can't figure out how to do the interaction on Spotify, the podcast actually has a, an email address that you can email me at. And, the email is all one word back row reviews podcast at gmail.com. You are more than welcome to send me uh, emails with your questions or, you know, your comments on the episodes. I am more than happy to respond to those. You can also find me on on Twitter the official Twitter handle for the podcast is is back row RV pod say that again it is capital B A K R O capital R V capital P O D 
that is where you guys can follow me at. I will, I tend to post updates and stuff there. So I'm more than happy to interact with you guys there. Like I said, you can, you'll find, you can comment on the episode on Spotify. You can hit me up at, at the Gmail at back row reviews podcast at gmail.com or at our Twitter handle that is back row RV pod guys. I truly appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. This has been fun for me. I hope it's been fun for you and I cannot wait until we get the next movie review coming at you. As always, I am your host, Johnny. This is Dozer sitting next to me. Listen to me ramble on. Thank you. Good night. You have a good day. I will talk to you later. Bye.